Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a great chat room with some very special folks that join us every week, so don't miss out. Join the chat room today. Okay, Ravinder, it's time for you to invite everyone to your chat room and tell them, you know, why they should get on in there. They should come on in because we are here and there's always a great party going on in the chat room. Great conversation, very stimulating, and uh, there's only one problem with it, and that is that you are not there. So come in to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Say hello, and then you don't have to say anything else if you don't want to. Just, uh, Just come and mingle and enjoy the conversation. You will definitely gain from it, that is for sure. All right, in our Spotlight of the Week segment this week, we turn our attention to a simple question. Who on earth thinks of some of these things? Now, last week I learned that, and let me quote this, the Marion County Board of Commissioners announced that they are putting a stop to a waste-to-energy facilities program that was incinerating aborted babies in order to produce electricity. Close quote. Now, come on. I've read this. It, 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 what is that a joke? I mean, really? Okay, well, the bottom line is, who knows? The fact is this. Although the plant has been receiving shipments of medical waste from Canada that include, quote, human tissue and fetal tissue, close quote, uh, specific information documenting that such waste actually included aborted fetuses, just seems not to be available, at least for the moment right now. Everybody wants to kind of run and hide from this issue. I don't know. You know, I mean, if you lived in the area and you were a resident and you suddenly discovered you've been running your lights from cadaver waste, I I, I don't I, Okay, Soylent Green and other images come to my mind. But listen, so waste to energy plants burning human tissue to produce electricity? I mean, what do you think about that? But if you if you look just a little bit broader, you know, it's nothing compared to some of the things that are going on out there. When I looked at this, I thought I could take an entire two hours looking at all these different areas. But I decided, look, I'm just going to grab food. So for a minute, let's look at food. If you Google the craziest food additives, an unbelievable array of information greets you. It's just quoting. Did you know that once upon a time, amaranth was used as a food coloring? Red to be specific, but scientific testing found it to be extremely carcinogenic, so someone came up with a replacement, Allura Red AC, also known by the E number, E129. Now, Allura Red AC is made from coal tar, a liquid that is a byproduct of turning coal into coal gas or coke. Coal tar is flammable, 
and it's frequently used in medicated shampoos designed to kill head lice. It is also used to make Tylenol. While Allura Red AC is not carcinogenic, it can cause vomiting and other side effects in some people. Despite this, it is FDA approved and very common, if you will, get this, in candy and soft drinks. Well, all right, how about this one? Are you aware that shellac is used in baking and in mass-produced candy to give the finished product a nice shine? I can't even imagine eating shellac. I can remember shop classes when I was a kid, and using shellac is, you know, to get that varnish look on the wood that we were... Are you serious? Shellac is made from a secretion of the female lac beetle. Or how about this one? Cochineal and carmine are two red food colorings that are derived from bugs. The cochineal bug to be exact. Cochineal is produced by drying and pulverizing the whole body of the bug, while carmine is a derivative of cochineal powder. The bugs are usually killed by immersing them in boiling water. The amount of time they spend in the water determines the level of redness whether it be a lighter orange or a vivid red. And it only takes about 155,000 insects to make two pounds of food dye. Well, the list goes on. From aborted fetal cells used for flavor testing to the fact that mass-produced bread products are baked with hair, more specifically through an amino acid called L-cysteine which is most commonly extracted from hair, but can also be found in feathers. Now, this is my favorite. <laughs> you have a favorite. Are you ready for this I'm one? sitting here wanting to throw okay. up. <laughs> Beaver anal juice. Cast. Oh, <laughs> quit laughing, will you? Castorium is used in foodstuffs. It is most commonly found as a flavor enhancer in raspberry products, which may be why you don't like raspberries. Apparently, it adds a nice, rounded flavor. It is also found in chewing gum. You don't chew chewing gum either, do you? No. And cigarettes. Now, my question is, who on earth discovered that beaver poop juice tasted good with raspberries? I mean, come on. Imagine the taste testing that went on discovering this one. Okay, now, just for you. Just in case you're a vegetarian, don't think you're avoiding all this animal life either. It's not just the hair or feathers that might catch you in bread. It's animal fat hiding everywhere, including in your sacred Twinkies. You know what our son would do if he heard that Twinkies had animal fat in it? So once again, I ask, who on earth thinks of these things, and how are we supposed to get ahead of the curve and anticipate what we might be eating tomorrow or where our electric power is coming from today? Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? You really want my thoughts on <laughs> On this, you know, now I was aware of the animal fats in lots of breads and stuff when I first turned vegetarian. I, that's when I learned how to read food labels. Um, the other stuff, actually, I was just thinking, you know, how we have our own raspberries 
And I often can get put off by them simply because they're so hard to wash and make sure you get all the bugs off. Well, I think I would much rather a aphid or two than anal juice. Thank you very much. But no, I actually, these days I get really, um, you know, I'm very interested in foods and, you know, healthy foods and better ways to live and all of that kind of stuff. So these days I get actually upset when we go grocery shopping. Because I look around there and I don't see shelves and shelves of food. I see shelves of chemicals and products and disgusting things. I mean, if you go along the meat counter and you get some beef, well, the beef that you get, if it's ground beef, um, it could come from hundreds of different cows. It's not, you know, this is the cow, it was slaughtered, it was ground, and this is what you've got. You've got hundreds of them. The cows have been treated badly in lots of instances. Um, you know, there are stories that really upset me of cows being beaten and picked up by forklift trucks and all of that kind of stuff. Um, then they get pumped full of growth hormones and antibiotics. Then they get fed dead cows. That's where mad cow disease came. So, you know, that is just the cow part of it. Then they process it. And then we discover pink slime and, you know, all of these other additives that they will put in it to make sure that it looks pink. I mean, have you ever purchased beef? Um cut into it and seen that the outside was beautifully pink, like it has just been ground specially for you. And inside it's brown and mucky. You know, now I know something about oxidation. It happens from the outside in, not the inside out. But, you know, I am vegetarian and I yeah, but am you, becoming yeah, but even vegan as a vegetarian, now. your favorite is the blueberries that aren't in the blueberry box. I know. It's it's just a huge con. You know, you, when you try to eat healthy, so, okay, I'll get the blueberry muffin, not the chocolate muffin, although dark chocolate is good, but they don't have dark chocolate in muffins anyway. And then you discover there's not one speck of blueberry in that muffin, not one tiny bit. It It really, really upsets me. And then you come across foods. You know, I can pick up an item of food that says that it's one serving, and we all (laughs) know that one serving is not one serving. It might be for a mouse, but it's not one real. But even that one serving has 100% of your sodium. Actually, the one I'm thinking about had 98% of your sodium in that one pathetic little Serving, So you have all of the, you know, the government and the FDA. I mean, they're all responsible for taking care of our food, and they don't. They fail abysmally. And then you can add in they're going to ban the home farmer, the person with the chickens, the person growing vegetables. Oh, because people might get sick. When was there a global epidemic because of some carrots someone grew in their backyard doesn't right. happen so you ask me i could go on and on and on yes it makes well, me very just, unhappy we're the tip of the iceberg totally. and only on the food we haven't gone over to talk about the drugs or we haven't gone over to uh, there you're right okay time to leave it <laughs> every week i read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful last week our show featured tom campbell 
and our conversation centered upon consciousness, both its evolution and its role in our physical universe. Michael wrote, thank you for the show with Tom Campbell. I have long suspected that consciousness was the glue that bound the universe together, but hearing it from a nuclear physicist was astonishing. Divadoc commented, I love shows that create more questions than they answer. CB wrote, I love getting my minder bended with this sort of stuff. Colleen wrote, I just wanted to drop a line and let you know how much I enjoy your spotlight segments. They are always very thought-provoking. Sandra wrote, I've been reading your book, Mind Programming, Can't Put It Down. Robert wrote, Observation without negative judgment requires conscious training, while observation with a positive outcome takes very little effort at all. Why is it that we are more seemingly prone to sharing our negative opinions than our positive? A conscious effort to turn this around has made a profound impact on my life. I credit people like Eldon Taylor, Eckhart Tolle, and Don Miguel Ruiz for their collective teachings and influence. Well, that's very nice of you, Robert. I sincerely am honored by your words. Paula wrote, We listened to Mr. Taylor on Coast to Coast while on our honeymoon road trip. We enjoyed listening so much. His honesty, telling stories about himself that were sometimes less than complimentary, created a feeling of trust in his process because his willingness to tell his own story helps others to know that they are not alone and can benefit from his methods just as he himself did. Well, thank you, Paula, for your wonderful words. I hope that is true, although sometimes telling those stories is embarrassing. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. I truly appreciate your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show, Living Boldly, The Rebel Road with Simran Singh. Simran Singh, a creative visionary, transformational catalyst, and humorist in the realms of metaphysics, spirituality, and motivation, is the award-winning publisher of 1111 Magazine. She hosts the number one rated syndicated 1111 Talk Radio on Voice America's 7th Wave and on the lighter side radio broadcast on World Puja Network. Globally reaching hundreds of thousands of individuals with her impassioned wisdom, Simran is well known to assist people in understanding the conversation the universe is having with each of us individually. Leading change agents, best-selling authors, world-renowned healers, and motivational speakers endorse Simran's work as a unique source of powerful truth, wisdom, and rich content. Her philosophy of being an example of authenticity and compassion and a bold experience and creation catalyzes profound change. As author of Conversations with the Universe, Simran walks her talk by letting all go in order to live boldly during the experience of a one-year, one-woman live streamed RV tour around the country. The Rebel Road is live streamed on One World Puja Network, and is her vision of freeing people from their self-imposed limitations to live life fearlessly, boldly, and in the fold. And we'll get into that one today. Her copy reads, quote, Spending 30 years in the fashion industry, and the last decade as a rising voice in the field of consciousness awakening, Simran is adept at the art of letting go. As depicted in a 2013 TEDx talk, Simran shows the realism of journey to the hollow depths of human existence into the rising steps toward personal fulfillment and rich experiences as she transparently shares her trials and tribulations of living in the divided in the divide of two cultures 
leading an arranged marriage and continually dying to the self in order to discover the vastness of the unknown greater self. Close quote. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Simran Singh. Oh, it's so wonderful to be here with you, Eldon and Ravinder. It's always a pleasure, and I'm excited to have a conversation. Great. You know, we haven't talked in some time now, but there are three things that we like to flesh out on this show. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So to begin, please tell us about you, Simran, your childhood, your upbringing, and your marriage. I am someone who is just like every single person listening. I'm an individual who got caught up in the illusion of believing that we were here to please people, that love meant working for it, that uh, we were to follow all the rules, be the perfectionist, be the person that did life the way everyone else did it. And I decided to also play that role while also being in an Indian culture and following an arranged marriage. I am um, an individual who's been in the fashion industry for a very long time, and I left that. It was a family business. And then through that walk in fashion, I started to notice patterns, pardon the pun, not just patterns in clothing, but patterns in people, because you get that when you're in a dressing room with a woman. You find out that people talk about their issues, and that really had me start delving into some of the things that were going on in my own life. And in doing so, I've had an amazing walk where I have really seen signs and symbols and synchronicities and a language that has unfolded from the universe as a conversation, but has also shown me that if we allow dying to be the choice that we make every single day, dying to the identities, then we actually will create a new world of aliveness every single morning when we get up. That's interesting, and I want to get into that and the dialogue that, uh, you know, you actually cover in one of your books that the universe has with us. But first, your sister is Governor Nikki Haley. Yes. Were the two of you close when you were young, and how much competition would you say existed between the two of you? There were four children in our family. We were each about four to five years apart in age, and the two of us girls were in the middle And so I think that we were a close-knit family in terms of of being the only Indian family in our community for a very, very long time and being very, very different in the Bible Belt South. So we were were trying to stick together and make our way, Uh, but we were also very, very different. She's a very outgoing, expressive, bold young woman, and she's always been that way from the time she was a child. And... Our, our early life circumstances kind of helped to mold the personality in that way. And at the same time, I became very much a shy, introverted, quiet child that liked to hide. And so as much as we are alike, we are different. And as much as we are doing very different things in the world, we're actually doing the same thing. Yeah, I, I've heard you comment on that before. She's doing it in in an outer sense, I believe that's how you say it, and you're doing it in an inner sense. Have that, I got that is correct, kind of? okay. yes. All right, you and your sister once attempted to compete in a local beauty contest, the Little Miss Bamberg pageant, I believe is what it was called, and you were racially discriminated against. Please share that story with us and its impact on you. Well, that's probably one of the stories that has most impacted both of our lives. Uh, when we moved to this tiny town in the south, 
we were in a small town that had only one stoplight, 3,500 people, and one of the big things to do there was a beauty pageant, the Little Miss Beauty Pageant. And my mother was a teacher in the public schools. My father worked at a local college. And many of the teachers in the school said, you really should put your daughters in this pageant. This is the thing that we do here. It's the thing that everyone in town waits for every year, and they come out for every year. And so to be inclusive with the rest of the town, Mom decided to go ahead and enter both of us. I happened to be seven. My sister happened to be four. And in doing so, we got very excited to be a part of something, to go to rehearsals, to be with the other little girls, to dress up in that way. And my sister was also going to sing at the intermission. They had asked for some of the kids to do things, and my sister was already quite an extrovert and loved to perform and act and do different things. And so the night of the pageant came, and it went exactly as we had rehearsed through all of the rehearsals, and it came towards intermission, and the mistress of ceremonies had announced backstage that we were all going to line up on stage one more time before intermission, which was something different than had been originally planned. And so all of the girls lined back up on stage. All of the little African-American girls were to my left, and all of the Caucasian girls were to my right, and my sister and I were standing dead smack in the middle, so we looked just like the second row of the Crayola crayon box. <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, the Rainbow Coalition was happening there in the South. And so uh, the mistress of ceremonies said, uh, would, would Nikki and Simi Rendawa please come to the front of the stage? And both of us got so excited, we squeezed each other's hands, and we walked to the front of the stage. I don't know that my sister really knew what was going on. She was kind of following my lead. But at seven years old, I was very excited because we had gotten called forward and this audience was packed. There was standing room only at this point because all the bleachers had been filled in this stadium, and everyone and their relative was there for this pageant. And then her next words were, we'd like to thank you both for being in the Little Miss pageant. However, we select one black queen and one white queen, and you two are neither, so we're going to have to disqualify you. And in that moment, I don't know what happened with my sister, but I saw people whispering and laughing and pointing, and then she kind of ushered us to go behind the curtain. And in that moment, a tape started playing in my head that I didn't fit, that the world was not safe, that I couldn't ever be accepted here, that I needed to hide. And that was the moment that I actually became a hermit and very introspective and shy. My sister, however, was to go back on stage and sing because it was intermission. And ironically enough, and I talk about conversations with the universe and how they show up everywhere, well, this is one of those occasions where the song happened to be a conversation with the universe, but I don't know that the people in the audience got it. She sang, this land is your land, this land is mine. And when she finished, I mean, you have to imagine a little four-year-old with a bowl haircut in a frilly floral dress with a huge crinlin underneath it. She looked adorable, and she sang quite well. People stood and applauded. They were whistling, they were cheering, they were clapping. And in that moment, the tape that started playing in her head was, I'm accepted, I'm loved, people, people clap for me, people cheer for me, people embrace me. So it's not a wonder that she had the walk in life that she would create the experiences to eventually become governor, now running for her second term. And I wouldn't be surprised if one day she ran for president, which would be an amazing idea because I think she'd be fabulous. And that I would end up walking a road where I would follow everything that I thought I needed to do 
to try to be accepted, to try to be loved in the smaller and smaller circle of my life that I thought I had to fit in because the world had been so scary. Now, just so our audience knows, and, and that's that's a compelling story, and, and I want to break it down a little bit, but just so our audience knows, um, like my beautiful wife, your native uh, country, well, you, you're born American, but you're Indian. Uh, and so what you're saying is you were discriminated because you weren't either black or you weren't white, and and because of that, uh, that one episode, the two of you as sisters translated it differently, took it apart, and it changed your lives, and it is how you live your lives out today. Have I got that correct? Yes, I think that all of our experiences, every step of the way, give us a choice as to how we're going to see it and what we're going to take on from it, so whether that we're going to let it define us or not. And we each let that experience define us in different ways. That was ways. your first message from the universe, I would take it. All right, we have a hard break coming up. So, you know, we're speaking with Simran Singh about her life, her books, and The Rebel Road. You can learn more about Simran by visiting her website at www.simran, S-I-M-R-A-N, dash, Sing, S-I-N-G-H dot com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up after a few words from some of our friends. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in a funhouse? only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you, I invite you to step through the doorway and onto the path leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Elton Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free from your current perceptions and begin your journey to how high is up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. It's only seen 
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Simran Singh about her life, her books, and the Rebel Road. We ask our guests for up to three songs that really have meaning in their lives. They're life songs, if you will. This album provides some truly interesting insight into our guests. So we just played some of Bette Midler's The Rose. Why is this song important to you, Simran, and how does it tell us about who you are? Well, I... I think there are several different meanings here. My name, um, in, in many ways, if you look at my full name, it means love. And so the path that my life was supposed to to take was love. My middle name is Preeth, which is love. Simran is utter devotion, almost the divine speaking to the divine in utter devotion. So, you know, we're we're here to live out a certain story. We're here to live out a blueprint that we each are. And we create a magnificent story along the way to first not be... Uh, our full brilliance so that we can discover that full brilliance. And so I've had this amazing novel of a life already where I've I've had that part of the life where it's gone down into the deep valleys and trenches and then where it has also been that upward climb that each and every one of us take. And so and we're all after that that thing called love, not recognizing very early on that we are actually the thing that we seek. Okay, before the break, Simon, we were talking about a defining moment for you and your sister. Introverted you, or led to your introversion, as you explained, and perhaps led to her extroversion. But because your sister is a governor, some in the press like to publicize you anyway, and uh, they like to find every little thing that they can get their hands on to embarrass or compromise you or your sister, so, you know, whether it's uh, an issue of property taxes or, you know, the most recent TEDx talk where you were branded as a mystic and Nikki Haley's sister, the metaphysical mogul, you, you have to live somewhat in her shadow. What has that been like for you? How do you process that? How do you deal with that kind of material? I don't know that I'm living in her shadow. I think what I have been doing most of my life is living in my own shadows. I think that's what we all do. We want to think that it's about people out there, but when we really look at life, anything that we're experiencing is an opportunity for us to recognize the very shadows that we've created for ourselves and the very light that we express. You know, Madonna says it best because she says any publicity is good publicity. So if you want to look at it from that kind of standpoint, it really doesn't matter anyway. The one main difference for a lot of people when they look at the two of us is they see someone that's a very public personality when they look at my sister and she is she's global you know she's the youngest governor in female governor in the United States she's the first Indian female governor and so she's not only had notoriety in the United States she's had notoriety all over the world and in India as well because people are are very very celebratory of that and so that is a very public persona. Spirituality is very personal. It is, it is a personal walk. It is an inward adventure. And that is what I have done. In doing so, I understand that I am experienced experiencing itself. I write this in my books, that we're not on a journey. We are the journey. And so for me to even let anything in the outside world be a distraction or think it has anything to do other than be another opportunity for me to look at something or celebrate something within myself would be just another distraction. And so my own spirituality and everything that I do, I do for me first, whether it's write a book, whether it's go down the rebel road, whether it's be on a radio show, I do it for me. My nickname is Simi. 
Everything means something. See me. I am here to see myself because I was not allowed to be seen by everyone else. I had to go behind the curtain. And when I went behind the curtain, I not only hid from everyone else, I hid from myself. And so each and every step of my life has to be first and foremost for me to express and experience myself. And only then can that ripple out in the world. And even then, I can't have attachment to that rippling doing anything because there really is nothing else here. There's only you. There's just one of us. And so I approach my life in that way because it helps me to be the best me that I can be. And it helps me to see everyone and everything else as love, as as the beautiful expression of the divine walking in front of me in whatever way it is expressing. Okay, but now your Rebel Road uh, process right this minute would seem to lay in direct contradiction to the idea that, you know, you went behind the curtain because you're putting it all out there. You're hanging it all out there. You're doing it live. And, and you're doing everything you can, rightfully so, to get as much attention as you can uh, while you're on this tour. So... What, 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 you know, what caused the movement? What caused you to decide to throw out the curtain and show yourself to the world, your innermost self to the world? You know, isn't that the way the illusion looks? It looks like one thing and it's actually something else. The rebel road, first and foremost, has nothing to do with out there. The rebel road is actually an internal road. The expression of it that I was to do was outside because I had been such a hermit. I had hidden inside my four walls. I had tried to stay away from the world because I couldn't even deal with the the personal world that was going on inside of my home with all the chaos that was happening there. And so when I sat down after deciding to finally divorce after the 18-year arranged marriage, and I was sitting very, very quiet, I got this thought that who I have been has gotten me as far as I can go. So for me to have a different life, to me to have a different experience or be anything else, I have to dive into my unknown self. I have to dive into the me that I've never even known existed. And who would that person be? What would that person do? What, how would they behave? What could be the things that they would actually experience about themselves? And as I sat quietly for more and more days, what guidance I got was, you're here to sing, you're here to, to be funny, you're here to be out front, you're here to be someone that can see themselves. And it wasn't for me to get out on stage and have a bunch of people see me. It wasn't for me to promote or to market or fill up any seats. And that's part of what the show states, that we're not here to set any agendas. We're all outwardly focused to try to attain a bigger bank account or fill up an audience or make a certain number of products or publish a certain number of books or do all of those things, but we're doing them for the sake of getting attention from the outside, for the sake of getting the applause from the outside. Can we do all that stuff simply because we love ourselves enough to do it and because we want to see it from ourselves, whether or not we sell a single book, whether or not we fill up a single seat, whether or not anybody shows up for us, that we do it for ourselves. And so this show that I put on was completely unplanned. There was uh, not to be controlled. I got out there and sang without rehearsing. Every speech and every talk that was made, it was off the cuff because that was the way this was supposed to show up as an example that we don't have to have it together. We don't have to buy into that perfectionism, that who we are, our presence is enough, and when we show up, everything we need shows up, and every experience for those that happen to appear, 
will be there for them as well. And that's exactly what happened. Okay, and you know, I just I have to ask this question. The psychologist in me won't let it go. And and do you see any correspondence whatsoever between, in your own words, uh, your sister out front singing while you're behind the curtains, and your inner voice, your inner tutoring, telling you you're here to sing, you're here to get out there, and these changes in your life, the fact that your sister has had the accolades and the recognition. Uh, is there a possible motive, psychological motive attached at all there, Simran? I think that we can attach uh, meanings to anything that we see. And if we want to draw lines that connect things, then you can. You could just as easily attach it to my last name. My last name is Singh. So maybe I'm supposed to sing. Again, that singing was not for the sake of recognition or getting out there. I can tell you the very first time I got on stage in Washington, D.C., and I sang a couple of songs that I had written, which I actually knew the words to and that people had sent music in for and created for me on behalf of that just on their own uh, service. I got up on stage, and I forgot the last two verses for the two songs. And the beauty was that, number one, I got up there to do it, not really knowing how to sing, not even knowing if I had a voice, not even being that great. And people were there, and it affected them. Because at the end of that show, I had five people come up to me. They all said the same thing. But the last one was the one is the one I'm going to share with you. She said to me, I'm so grateful that you've just done this. I'm so grateful you've put on this show because you have given me the biggest gift in the world. I'm an opera singer, a world-class opera singer, and I've been invited to tour the world four times by four different companies, and I've turned each and every one of them down because I have this one fear. I've been afraid to forget the words. You've just shown me how to gracefully forget the words. I'm going to go be an opera singer. I'm going to tour the world now. And that was the whole point. It was about being able to let people know that when they're holding themselves back with their fears about thinking, I've got to be certified, I've got to be prepared, I've got to be practiced, I've got to have it all together, I have to have the right image, I have to be a certain person to get out in front of the world and do anything. What if we don't have to do that? What if the world is finally calling for real people that are just willing to not be teachers and gurus, but to be examples? People that are willing to just stay there and show up and say, I'm not here to lead you. I'm here to stand beside you and say, this, we're here to have fun. We've taken it all too seriously. We are here to play as children. And that is what your journey to enlightenment, my second book, is about. My foray onto the rebel road was me allowing myself to play as a child, to live wide open wonder with all of the vast United States and Canada as my playground, to get out there on stage and play dress-up, to sing, to dance, to be foolish, to play, and to find community because I had not had community in my life. And so everything I did, I did so that I could feed pieces of myself that I had never had. And in doing so, I discovered talents and gifts that I never even knew existed. I may not have been able to sing on that first show, but I can guarantee you by the 50th show, I have a pretty good voice. I have a really good voice. What if we're not supposed to be perfect the first time because we are experience, experiencing itself? What if it is the entire experience that gets us where to go, where we're to go? And what if, if we don't plan it, 
we end up at a destination far greater than the mind could ever even have thought up. Daring, very, very daring. I have a couple of more questions, and I want to get into the context of of your teachings a little deeper. Uh, but, you know, you, you mentioned you had an 18-year arranged marriage, and you decided that wasn't the thing. And, and so you, you know, you ended it. And uh, how did your family react to that? And has that had any, you know, ongoing impact? Uh, or how do you deal with that? You know, I think we all make our own choices, and I write, or I told in my show, that there's a certain age where we all make a choice, and it is our master year. Age 11 is a master number, and if each and every person will think back to age 11, you will see that there is a certain significant event that showed up in your life where you made a choice to either stay on your soul path or take the scenic route, which we otherwise call the dark night of the soul. In that moment, there was something that occurred that rocked your world so much that you started to doubt or believe the lies that were present in front of you. And that could have been anything like a divorce. It could have been the death of someone. It could have been an illness. It could have been a move. It could have been a birth of another child. But there was something in your life that took place. My age 11 moment was the moment that I decided that I was going to have an arranged marriage. No one forced me to do that. I grew up hearing the stories. We were already in this country, but I saw a situation in my family where my parents were arguing with my older brother because he was dating someone and he wasn't supposed to be dating. And I saw the turmoil that that created. And going back in my childhood, I saw how I wasn't accepted by the outside world. I didn't want to lose the love of my parents, too. So I decided in that moment I was going to marry and be the perfect Indian daughter, do exactly everything that I was supposed to do so that I could gain the love that I needed. Well, when I did that, all I did was create the perfect opportunity to have a person that could further embed the lies that I believed about myself, the lies of you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough, you'll never fit in, you're not accepted, you're not lovable. And so I created the exact same situation where I would be utterly betrayed and abandoned and abused and all kinds of things would take place so that I could really pound those lies into myself. And what it would require is me getting to a place where I had the courage to finally leave. And courage is not the opposite of fear. Courage is the opposite of conformity. Now, I know I'm talking about Indian culture and arranged marriage, but we've all done this. We've all people-pleased. We've all stepped into roles or actions where we thought if we did that thing, it would gain the love and the acceptance of someone else. But all we were really doing was conforming. And if we step out of our conformity and into courage, if we step into love of ourselves and a commitment, a full commitment to something, to ourselves first and foremost, then we allow in more aliveness into our lives. Otherwise, we are slowly deadening ourselves, becoming numbed out and becoming replications instead of the creative rebels that we were intended to be. Okay. You have two wonderful books, Conversations with the Universe and Journey to Enlightenment. And they're, and they're both truly wonderful books. And, and we're going to flesh out the stories behind these two books in the, in the next 90 minutes or so that we have. But you're out on the road right now on tour delivering your rebel message with your children. How, how are you handling their schooling and how are they handling the dimension of all of this? 
Well, one thing that I realized is the biggest gift that I could give my children was the wide open view of the possibility that the world holds. We had them already in very traditional schools. My my ex-husband was someone that was a doctor coming from a lineage of doctors, and they believed in education in a certain way, and there was a certain amount of pressure. If you grow up in an Indian culture, you're supposed to become an engineer, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's very revered. And so there was already this mindset that was kind of built into particularly my older child. And so I wanted to give him the opportunity to see that there's a different way, that you don't have to just become what either one of your parents are, but that there's a whole world out there, and that it doesn't have to be done any certain way, that traditional schooling is just one way. What if we tried unschooling for a year? And this happened to be the seventh grade. Of any of the grades that he could possibly just skip out on a year and go live an adventure of a lifetime, this was the perfect one to do it. It was before high school. It was middle school. It was an opportunity for him to see more in one year than most people see in a lifetime. And that's what we did. We literally got in an RV, my two kids. I had two other women that came on board just to kind of assist for shows and different things. And in this unplanned adventure, we were invited to different cities. And the cities we were invited to, they saw museums and aquariums and parks and all kinds of experiences and meeting of different people that they never would have encountered. And they saw life from a different perspective. And so I don't think that there could have been any better experience these two children or I could have had because I got to see life through the eyes of a child as well. And I got to see life in a way I'd never seen it before. So what if there's something that is tapping away at every single person's heart or gut? that thing that they keep putting off and that they keep uh, talking themselves out of because the logical mind steps in and says, you can't do that. In my book, Your Journey to Enlightenment, I talk about those being the excuses from letting you live your full happiness. And that's what we do. We make up every excuse in the book why we can't live our dreams. I can't live my dream because I'm a single mom with two kids, or I'm sick, or I'm taking care of someone that's sick, or I have to wait till my kids get taken care of before I can actually do what I want to do, or my degree's in one thing instead of another, or that really big one, I don't have the money. These are just excuses. What if you left your excuses and really leapt out on the dream? Would everything you need show up? Yes, it would. I've already proven that. Everything I needed showed up. It may not have shown up in excess but it did show up in exact measure of what I needed at the time. How old are your children, Simran? I have um, currently a 4-year-old and soon to be a 13-year-old. When we began this journey, they were 3 and 12. 13-year-old is a boy? They're both boys. They're both boys, okay. Uh, did you have any challenges with them? I mean, were they as you know ready, set as you were to go on this adventure? You know, my my youngest son is a little rebel at heart anyway. He's in, in any child at three or four years old, they're going to be ready for an adventure. So he was up and ready to go the minute we stepped on the bus. My older child was very excited to go before leaving. And then once we got on the bus, we were there for a couple of weeks. And, of course, at the age of 12, you're going to start missing your friends. It's that middle age where you start to question things. And so there was a bit of time where he had to really adjust to that and a huge part of him was so ingrained already in the traditional way of looking at school in particular 
that he had this idea that his life was going to be ruined because he wasn't in school, because he wasn't learning in the same way other kids are learning. And so it just illustrates how we get completely ingrained in these belief systems, and then we think we're going to be failures. The very same thing, you know, that happened to me as a child. A thought comes in, and then you start to define your life by it. And what it has allowed is the opportunity for him to see how much more he actually learned than he would have otherwise, because we ended up coming back from the tour a little bit early. Uh, We had a little bump uh, partially on the way. And so he came back, and he's now back in his school, and he has been a straight A-plus student ever since, proving to himself that he did get everything he needed and then some, which is what we always wonder is, are we really going to get it? And we will. Okay, so uh, was he a straight-A student before you went on tour? He was, uh, yes, he was an A student before we went on tour as well. So he's always been a straight-A student. Yeah. But but he did come around and say, oh, it was worthwhile, Mom. I'm glad we did that. You know, I don't know that he loves the idea of what we did yet. I think this is one of those things that you look back in life and you think, gosh, I can't believe I did that, and it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Uh, it is something that was a challenge for him, and the biggest challenge for him was the fact that he was now in a 217-square-foot space. You you see, when I was married, we lived in an obnoxiously large house, too large for three people. We were in a home that was 10,000 square feet with a 4,000-square-foot guest house. It's not anything anyone practically needs. And honestly, I was so embarrassed by it. It was just something that was too huge for me, and that was one of my own issues with being showy and all of that, so I never invited anyone over. But he was used to that lifestyle. And then since the divorce, I walked away from everything. And so we've downsized quite a bit. And before I decided to downsize, this vision of the Rebel Road came in, and we ended up in an RV. So you can imagine a child moving from a 10,000-square-foot home to a 217-square-foot space. When I would ask him, what is it you don't like about this, his main answer was, I don't like not having my own room and being in a space so small. Again, we've placed the material to have so much importance in our lives, and our children go up, grow up in these situations where it's all that they know. And so they've lost out on what just the simplicity of life is, how rich that is. So there were many lessons that I was trying to help give my children in the course of this, and there are going to be people that agree with it and people that don't agree with it. But the one thing that I know is it has touched him deeply, and he now sees the world from different perspectives, because before it was a very slanted view just from one tunnel vision uh, place of what the world is. Now he understands that, number one, there's beauty and simplicity, but also that their people live a lot of different ways. Okay. uh, There has to be... uh merit to that um, the diversity is important uh, equally is the argument that it doesn't matter what culture you come from uh, parents are going to choose uh, the experiences that we should all have so that perhaps we are prepared to live life the way they think we ought to live it alright again if you would like to know more about Simran Singh and her work visit her site or check out the links on provocativeenlightenment.com All right, we have a film featuring our guests during the break for you today. You can watch it in our chat room. So if you're not already there, now is the time to get on over there. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. 
We'll be right back after a brief station break. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Simran Singh about her life, her books, and the Rebel Road. But before we get back to the show, I want to invite you to join me on Facebook. I post regularly everything from where I am and what's on next to the latest in science, technology, and consciousness studies. And from time to time, some of my own opinions about the world we live in. And I love your comments and feedback. And Facebook is a great place for that. So please give me a like and join me at facebook.com forward slash Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now one more point of business before we return to the show. The Hay House World Summit is almost upon us, and I would encourage you to register for this wonderful event. It's free and it's online. You can check out all the details and register by going to eldentaylor.com. All right, now we just played some of your second musical choice, Simran. Letting Go by Stephanie Smith. What's the story about this one? Well, I think that we're all here to really allow ourselves to die to our identities, to let go of everything that we use to define us. We actually have self-imposed servitude, and every one of us wants to be in service, but what we don't realize is we've created servitude instead. Each and every one of us are here to bond with one another, but what we've done instead is created forms of bondage. Anything that makes us feel uncomfortable, stuck, uh, uneasy, or that feels challenging or hard, those are our ways of creating the excuses and the circumstances to put us in those places of servitude and bondage and replication. And letting go is about really allowing ourselves to say, I can die to even this identity, that I don't have to be just confined to this one person, and allowing ourselves to dive into the unknown self, which is beyond just this physical body, and that's what I experienced, is if I let myself let go of who I believed Simi or Simran were, and decided that I was going to be the unknown self, which is the greater self that is connected to everything else, the greater self that is bigger than I am, and really allowed myself to express from that place Anything was possible. The fact of the matter is we're only 1% different. 
we are only 1% different. I'm only 1% different than you, Eldon, 1% different than Ravinder. I'm only 1% different than Mother Teresa or Gandhi or Martin Luther King, and so are you. We are exactly the same except for 1%. And that 1% that makes us different is all of our shadows, doubts, beliefs, and our greatness, our unknown, and our bliss. So it is that 1% that we have that is our creative rebel that can be the unique genius piece that we bring to the planet that will be that piece of the divine puzzle that fits in to make the rest of it connect. Okay, now this 1%, you're talking about a genetic difference uh, when you say 1%? or I mean, is this a literal or a figurative kind of number? As beings, as beings, there is no difference from any of us. We are all made of God's stuff. We are all made of the divine stuff. So essentially, we all have, there's 100% of us, but 90%, 99% of us is the God stuff, the unknown stuff. It's the 1% that we dive into. Okay. Simran, you know, I I love what you're doing. It takes a lot of courage for you to do what you're doing, but I have to, I have to contrast it. uh, At the same time, Uh, you have children, and there is an obligation to uh, being the parent of those children, and um, sometimes that gives rise to struggle. Uh, It requires. At first, I disagree with you, Eldon, in in just the statement, the way you phrased it. I don't think there's an obligation to being the parent. I think there's a stewardship. I think okay. we believe okay. we are the parents, so but we are stewardship. not the parents of these children. All right. Then let's take a personal relationship, and we'll set children off for a side, because I'm going to suggest that um, in order for you to have a good relationship, uh, you're going to have to deal with difficulty. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have to persevere. And you're going to find that the rewards come as a result of your ability to adapt, not to uh, not to require yourself to be something, but to find a higher sense of order in the nature of the relationship as it matures. So, I, 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 I my question is, if you're if you're not in servitude in a relationship, as you put it, uh, there is no relationship. How, how do you balance that one? Well, you're not supposed to be in servitude to anything. If you're in servitude, then you've given yourself up. What we are here you, to you, be is You really service. believe that if you're in service, if you're in servitude to God... If you're in servitude to your fellow mankind, if you're in servitude uh, to your children or to your spouse, because you define that you get greater meaning out of that than you do in exploring uh, all of the um, sensations that you might otherwise be able to explore, you do believe that that servitude as in, you know, slavery? Anything that you are allowing yourself to be bound by where you're giving yourself up is a form of servitude. And we are not meant to be here in servitude to God, to man, to anything. We are here to be in service to. And there's a very big difference between the two. Because when you are in service, when you're in servitude to something, it is going to wear you out. You are going to be exhausted. You're going to be um, feel like you've been taken advantage of. It's going to feel hard. It's going to be a struggle. When you are in service 
to something, then it gives you energy. Then it gives you a feeling of joy. It gives you a feeling of love. The reason that so many people are so tired and or having such uh, health issues or are having so many challenges in their relationships is because they are in places of servitude. They have stepped out of service, and that's, that's a big point in the book. In your journey to enlightenment, it's divided into two very distinct halves. The first half is very serious. It's about being radically honest about how we do these things, how we place ourselves in servitude, how we become in bondage, how we become the Stepford human and replicated just like everybody else. And once we learn that we have to let go of that and we step more into service and into bonding and into creativity, then the next step of the book is very light. It's about stepping into the child. It is being the child again, approaching life from a place of wonder and curiosity and the purity and innocence that a child does. And I'm not talking about childish. I'm talking about childlike. Childish is the way that we're reacting now. Childlike is a place of wide-open wonder and curiosity that everything is approached from a place of reverence and focus and presence. That's what we've lost. You know, part of that I, I get, part of it I think is semantics. I uh, I genuinely think, uh, for what it's worth, that, uh, you know, uh, you can have a long-term commitment, and uh, I see it with children. I've, I've, our oldest son is at the University of Washington right now, and keeping him moving forward with his own plans, uh, his own ambitions, uh can be very trying from time to time, but you know the the compensation, if you will, that emotional feeling, that sense, it, it's all worth it. Uh, I I you know know there have been instances in my life when I have come across situations where maybe my better senses said leave it be and go on by, but I couldn't. I had to intervene because it was what was going on was unfair or unjust and and in a sense i see this as a duty as as an obligation i see it as the the philosophers see it uh to do otherwise is to lend tacit consent to behavior that is unacceptable and all of that i you know i define as how i live a meaningful life not as servitude uh, per se, but but as service, and that service is based again on um, a sense of obligation. So I don't know. I don't know if I see this as semantics or or not. I, I think that the the best way to define it, and either way is 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 fine. There is no right or wrong. There really is no right or wrong to how we do this, because everyone's going to live the life that they are living. But what I can tell you that you can use as the measurement is the feeling. Because if there is any sort of sense, and it could be very subtle, of letdown or of resentment or of I wish it would be a different way, then all of a sudden it's not being uh, in service to the purest and fullest extent. Because there would be no desire to change anything. There would be no desire to have to will something differently. It really could all be that unplanned and that open. And I've lived this for the past year. I've seen it happen. I've seen that if we allow life to be that organic, it actually has its own higher purpose that works its way into our lives. The problem is we're controlling. 
We're the ones that are trying to control everyone and everything in our world, and that's where the chaos comes from. When we have that chaos show up, the best thing to do with chaos is let it dissolve itself. But instead, we get involved in the chaos, so we just make it bigger chaos. What if we just let go? That's what the whole song is about, letting go so that life unfolds organically. Nature lives on its own. Nature unfolds. Nothing is clamoring to be something else. It's allowing itself to unfold. That's the part that we have lost as humans, and that's the part that has stripped us of our humanity. I like that. All right, listen. I understand that you uh, experienced a number of miracles while you were on this, uh, on the highway. T- tell us about the Rebel Roads miracles. Oh, I have lots of miracles that I experience all of the time, and they're miracles that we all do. I call them conversations with the universe. And there are these things that show up, these dots and these amazing little synchronicities and magic that show up to help guide you on your way. Uh, one of the most profound um, examples was when the teacher, I had, a, I had hired a teacher because I was not sure that I was capable of being a good homeschool teacher. And, and so I wanted the children to have what they did need in regard to unschooling since that was not my expertise. And so I had a, a woman that had come on board and she had been on board, and we had gone to Vermont, and I was about to do the show and finished my show, and another young lady came up to me after the show, and she said, I'm so inspired. I had no idea who you were. I just showed up here, and I'm so inspired by what you just did. I am a teacher. I'm certified. I'd love to do something like this. If you ever need a second teacher or for some reason your current teacher leaves, let me know. I would love to be a part of this tour. And so I said thank you to her, and we packed up our things and went home and went to bed. And the next morning at 6 a.m., the person who was the, the school teacher, she came to me and woke me up, and she said, Simi, I packed my bags. I would like to be taken to the airport. I'd like to go home. She had missed where she was. She felt like she was not adequately taking care of Sage's needs because she was younger, used to younger kids, and she had all of a sudden made a decision to leave. And I thought, my goodness, look at how I have been served because I have been given a teacher when I didn't even know I was going to need a teacher, that my problem has been fixed before I even knew I had a problem. And so I took her to the airport, and I called the other one up, and she came right in. And that also illustrated to me that when we each have a dream to do something, that there are spaces open. And when we don't leave, had the first teacher not left and stayed against what her heart was telling her, she would have, number one, blocked herself. She would have been in servitude. She would have been in bondage then because she was not following her heart. And secondly, she wouldn't have opened the space for someone whose heart calling had now come. And that just goes to show us that if we allow ourselves to move and step into the dreams that we're here to build, that we allow the spaces to open for everyone to step into to support those dreams as well. And I've had one miracle right after another like that show up. All right, Simran, your your sheets, your information sheets, indicate that the Rebel Road has something to do with the DNA and the Fountain of Youth. Flesh that out for us, please. What I experienced as I was going along this path, and it began in the course of just the dreaming of this over the few months prior to the Rebel Road starting because nothing was there. There was no RV, there were no shows, there was nothing up until the first week before the show was 
the, the tours to begin, and all of a sudden everything started to appear. And the shows began, and I felt such an aliveness and such an excitement at living this unplanned life and just seeing where life took me and living out all of these parts of myself that I've never discovered before, that there was a renewed energy. My skin started looking different. I had um, more energy than I ever knew what I could do with, and I started to feel so much more alive. And it literally is the fountain of youth. When we let go of the excuses and we finally follow what really is poking away at our heart and our gut, we open up each and every cell of our being with a level of excitement and celebration that the cells can't help but be healthy. They can't help but allow a more youthful approach to come through. And so I truly feel like I found a fountain of youth just by allowing myself to fully live in aliveness. Most of us are just living, or most of us are just trying to make a living. That's not what we're here for. We're here to be alive. And that's the place that we all must go and not settle for less. Perhaps just being childlike as opposed to childish gives us memories. Uh, I know there's a lot of research that shows just remembering youth, just participating in that, does indeed young us. All right, let's go to your books. You have two wonderful books, Conversations with the Universe is, uh, you know, how the world speaks to us. We have indirectly been talking about all the time we've been talking about the Rebel Road, right? Because you started this uh, trip uh, basically on the basis of your conversations with the universe. Uh, How did that come about that you began to see these events that occur in life, the synchronicities, the coincidences? I don't believe in coincidences, but so I'll put that word in quotation marks. How did you begin to see them as messages from the universe uh, giving you direction, uh, helping you in unfolding your life. This all began for me initially uh, when I was in one of the most challenging periods of my life, and I really cried out to the universe to either take me out of here or give me some sort of sign to let me know a direction to take. And I started seeing the numbers 11, 111, and 1111. That led to me creating 1111 Magazine and 1111 Talk Radio, and it led to me also saying to myself, if the universe can talk to me through numbers, how many other ways is the universe actually talking to us that we don't realize? And I started to discover that the universe speaks to us through everything. Not only are we being spoken to through everything, our cars, our houses, our pets, our children, the strangers that we meet, the plants, the butterflies, the insects, everything in our world, that it's actually us speaking back to us about us, that there really is only one thing happening here, and it is good, and it is you, and it is experience experiencing itself. And so I live my life this way, knowing that everything around me is actually another version of me speaking back to me, or you could say another version of the divine speaking back to the divine, because that's what we all are, aspects of the divine. As I began this journey, I started to connect all the dots that would show up. And I tell people this because we all have it. You have things happening in your life every single day, multiple times a day, that are the ordinary and the mundane, and they are as significant as those things that you like to call coincidences and synchronicities. When they show up, everything is trying to piece together not just a symbol or a sign, 
but an actual paragraph, a dialogue with you about the next place to go. And if you simply follow the dots, it becomes a very magical experience. It is how the universe plays with us. And so I would just simply watch my world. I would watch people that would come in. I would watch what was going on with my uh, surroundings or with my children or anything that would happen, not from the place of a set of binoculars looking for anything, but from things that really got my attention. And as I would make note of the various things that would happen over a span of time, I would see what the dialogue was, and it would lead me to each and every step. And that is how the Rebel Road came into being. I didn't decide I could sing. I didn't decide I could do humor. I didn't decide I could put on a one-woman show because I'd never done those things before. I got dots. I got messages. I got things that kept showing up on my computer or on television or conversations that kept happening in front of me or license plates that would say things or billboards. And they were so resonant each and every place that I knew that was what I was supposed to do. You know, Simran, we have lots of biases as human beings. You know, we have hindsight bias, confirmation bias. I mean, there's there's even something that's called the Texas sharpshooter uh, uh, error uh, that essentially goes this way. You know, uh, imagine that there is a, a Texas cowboy and he takes out his six gun and he just shoots his barn full of holes. I mean, just all day long is out there with his six guns shooting the barn side full of holes. Well, and then we go to the barn uh, later and we draw a circle around a cluster of these uh, holes and we say, you know, this was a target. Wow, this had to be a real sharpshooter. Now, that's that's the kind of fallacy that occurs when we when we expect to find something in the universe um, and we all have perceptions, and we, you know, we have solid data that shows the basis of our perceptions interprets our, that is, our expectation is the basis for our perception, and that interprets how we see the universe. So if, if I'm going to be reading the signs from the universe, how do I avoid all these biases, these fallacies of thought? Where do I know what to trust? And, you know, what, what separates the same person in their interpretation of the signs from the universe from, you know, say the Lafferty brothers? I happen to be, you know, have a, a bit of an involvement there. These are two brothers that God told them to kill their uh, their sister-in-law. And uh, they had all these coincidences we or, or synchronicities. Uh, they testified in court that, uh, indeed, they acted on behalf of of uh, directions from the Lord, and, and, you know, they sincerely believed it. How do we come to trust this information and our interpretation of it? Well, there's one distinct difference between what you're speaking of and what I'm talking about, and that is, in those cases, there's all separation, and there's a difference between the other and, and the person. What I'm saying is, everything you're looking at is you. And so if, if everything you're looking at is you, there will never be guidance to hurt or harm or do something to another because it's you that you're doing it to. There would well, never be that. And whatever shows up, it's, it's going to be about attitude. It is going to be to a certain degree about perspective because either your perspective is going to buy into the illusion or your perspective is going to buy into reality. And the problem is most of us think the illusion is the reality but that's not the case. 
because the thing right, that well, is real is the thing that you can't really see. All right, we have a hard break coming up. I don't want the computer to kick us out. You you can do harm to yourself, I think. Maybe I used a bad analogy there or example. When we come back after the break, though, let's do take up this issue of how do you trust your interpretation of the information that is all about you. We hope you're enjoying our show today. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes and take your phone calls. So if you have a question for Simran Singh, do call in. You can do that by dialing 1-877-230-3062. Stay tuned. We have saved the best for last. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Whether you catch our show on CTR or 12radio.com or bto.net and or bbs.com, we want you to know that we appreciate you. Thank you for listening. If you're new to this show, you may enjoy our archives. You can find more than five years of archives at our site, provocativeenlightenment.com. During that time, we have interviewed Hollywood greats, politicians, psychics, CIA personnel, Hard scientists, religious leaders, skeptics, mathematicians, philosophers, social psychologists, best-selling authors, channels, mediums, and more. We have charted the waters of health and wellness, parapsychology, psychic phenomena, UFOs, NDEs, physics, psychology, criminology, neuromarketing, brainwashing, and still more. If any of that sounds like your kind of radio, check out our archives again at Provocative Enlightenment. Be sure to subscribe to our free newsletter while you're there. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Simran Singh about her life, her books, and the Rebel Road. We'll take your phone calls in this half hour. So if you have questions of our guest, either give us a call or submit your questions in our chat room. Ravinder and her team are there to put your questions forward. Okay, Simran, we just played some of Can't Box Me In by Homer Society. What's the story with this one? Well, if you think about all of us, we have done nothing but put ourselves inside of boxes. When we were born, most of us were in a natal unit inside of a bin, inside of a hospital. Those are two boxes. 
we take it, get taken out of the hospital, we go to a home, that's another box. We start to grow up, we go into school, that's another box. We go into then college, which is a bigger box. We then decide to get married, we go to church, that's another box. Every stage of our life, we keep putting ourselves in boxes, and we have to open up all of these boxes and open up ourselves and let ourselves be free so that we understand that we are not all of these definitions that we have identified ourselves with, that we are actually far beyond this. And part of the problem is we've taken every one of these boxes way too seriously. We've taken life too seriously. We've forgotten that we're here just to play. We really are here as divine children of the great universe. We are the divine child of creative capacity, and that means we are here to do nothing but constantly create, not to get locked down or locked in anything, but to completely follow our hearts and constantly create. And when we do that, we actually are taken care of. But we want to get, uh, we want to get out of our logical mind because too many of us believe because of our logical mind, we can't do the things that we want to do. We want everything to look logical. We even want to make sense of the things that don't make sense. But that's the whole point. We have to get out of our minds. We actually have to lose our minds to really discover who we are. You know, I've been a little tough on you, I, I have to admit. You that. have been tough on me today. <laughs> but, you, but you have done very well with the tough questions. I mean, this is provocative <laughs> enlightenment. And, and you know, we, we do ask the tough questions. I have to tell, you know, you and everybody else that, I, I like your message. I love what it is that you say. And, and as you know, I have both of your books, and I, I have spoken very highly in, in all forms, uh, written and orally, about both of your books. But, but I, I still come back, and, and, and I look at these messages, and, I, and I'm going to come back to you, Simran, and I'm going to say, how do we know which ones to trust, or how is it we decipher them? How is it that we know you know, this is really the message and that we're not just, you know, want it to be the message and so we're kind of forcing it or fabricating it. I mean, how do you do that for yourself, Simran? See, there you go. But see, isn't that of the mind? That, again, that's getting locked in the mind. Uh, one, of, one of the people in the chat room, Mark, has asked the question, and he's asking, when do you know that you're fabricating it in your own mind? Well, the po point is, you're making it all up anyway. Every bit of it is being made up. So whether this is a bunch of hogwash, whether you don't believe a thing I say, whether you want to call everything I say BS, what I can tell you is living my life with my perspective, I'm a very peaceful person. I'm happy. I look at the good in everything because if I'm willing to see any and everything, even the worst obstacle, the worst challenge, the worst villain, the worst person as myself and as the one of the five questions in my first book, Conversations with the Universe, and that question is, where is that in me? Then all of a sudden I've become one with that thing outside of me, and I'm able to see it with different eyes than well, I can no, from an eyes of judgment. Wait and that way I here. discover it. Wait just a minute here. You just cleared something up. So it wasn't me that was being hard on you today. It was you being hard on yourself. Of course. There's only one here. There's only one here. And the one that is doubting would be you doubting yourself. We're each in our own bubble of reality. And so those people that show up around us that are going to behave in a certain way, it's an opportunity for us to then look and say, where is that in me? 
and especially say it if it triggers you. If it doesn't trigger you, then you can say that's just an image that's showing up and it can pass on by. But if it creates a trigger, then if that's the perfect moment to say, where is that in me? And find that because you do that in your world, either to yourself or to other people. And the moment you can clean that up, all of a sudden it dissolves. But then we can make it playful. I had my air conditioning go out this past week in my condo. And okay. so I'm sitting here going, all right, my air conditioning is going out. What's this about? It's getting really hot in here. It's getting really hot in here. But mm-hmm. I've had this feeling that something big is about to happen. So the guy comes in. He gives me a quote for $3,100 to replace the air conditioning unit. Now, you know most of us. We're going to go into this going, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this has happened. I've got this bill to pay. Where am I going to come up with $3,100? That's where we all go. But I sat down and I looked at the invoice quote, and the first thing that came to mind when I was looking at it was the quote number was 1129. Well, you know, my numbers are 1111. 1129, 29s, and 11. So I'm like, okay, that's interesting. The next thing that I noticed was the name of this company was Southern Air Solutions. And this S in Southern Air was made like the symbol of an infinity. It was two arrows, one going in and one going out. Well, I always talk about involution and evolution, and this was the symbol of infinity. And I'm thinking Southern Air Solutions. Well, I'm Southern. I do speak air out into the air all the time. Maybe I'm the solution. Maybe this is that feeling that I'm having. And then if I wanted to accept the quote, it was invoice number SS1129. Well, SS numerologically is 11. So now it's 11, 11, 11. I'm like, wow, that's triple 11. That's triple my numbers. So what's going on here? And then the third thing that happened was there was another number on there that was 1,300 that was mirroring the 3,100. And so all of a sudden I thought, this is it. This is all going to be really cool. There's nothing better than this air conditioning going out. This is about to show me something really big is going to happen. Now, a lot of people could say, okay, she's lost her mind. She's off the deep end. She's just making something out of nothing. But isn't that what we do anyway? But what if we could take everything bad that happens in our lives and we see it from a different perspective to where we stay in a place of excitement and play and fun and then see what happens? Well, that's where I stayed. And the next thing that took place is I got invited after the air conditioning unit was replaced. I got invited to several big conferences and they happened to be They happened to be called the Train Seer, which was the same name as the exact unit that was put into my air conditioning system. It was called a Train Seer, S-E-E-R. Well, what am I? I see the conversations of the universe. A lot of people will say, she's putting a lot of things together that don't make any sense. But what does it hurt for you to see life in a good way? It doesn't mean you don't feel the emotions that you have, but it does say, what if nothing is random? What if everything actually does show up for me to play with me, to actually be part of a conversation with the universe as me, showing me more of me? And if I followed that for a little while, the way a child plays, what could possibly happen? And I would guarantee you, you would see magic. Don't trust me. Try it. Interesting. I can tell you this, you know, and and, and I mean this. Uh, Two years ago, the Simran Singh that represented herself through YouTube and, and uh, well, for that matter, everywhere else, well, didn't look very happy. Um, 
in, in fact, I don't, I mean, please forgive me, but didn't even, I mean, looked like there was a lot of stress in your life and maybe you weren't even your most healthy. The Simran Singh today is uh, younger, more vital, uh, you know, in every sense of the word, I suppose you could say um, emanates playfulness at all levels of her being, not just wellness. So when I listen to you, I think, you know, when we were children, we made stories up. You know, the mind is first a believing machine and second a storyteller. I mean, you go to an airport and you watch people getting off an airplane and you begin to make up stories about what kind of person that is or what, where they came from and so on and so forth. We are storytellers. So what you're suggesting is that we, we play with all of the events in our life. We, we, we have the stories, but we, we do it expecting that it's a playmate playing with us in a playful way, that there isn't a danger, there isn't anything to fear. Have I got that right? Well, the problem is we're all trying to get away from our stories. What if we dived into the story? What if we became part of the story? What if the past story was actually the threads that lead to the ending, to the hero's journey, to the rest of the story? That's the whole point. You know, when I began everything and I started seeing those numbers, in that moment I yelled out to God. I said, either make these numbers stop or tell me why they're here. And I got that download for 1111 Magazine. And I heard the words specifically, you will heal, others will heal. Everything I've done since 2008 has been for me to heal. I get that. I will proudly proclaim I am not here as a teacher or a guru. I am here as an example, an example of someone who was broken and wounded and on the floor ready to give up, someone who just said, I'm willing. I'm willing to follow the dots. I'm willing to see the signs. I'm willing to listen. Just show me where to go. Help me. And that's what happened. I got each and every step along the way. And now I can look back and say, good gracious, how rich this was, how beautiful this was. You know, I've been this, in this quest for devotion because that has been my longing, that lover and beloved experience. And now as I look back on that road, I look and see the devotion that I've had to myself. And that's the beauty. So if I can just simply let people know that that darkness is where your ember sits. It is where the light begins. It is the richest, juiciest part of this never-ending story. And you get to make it all up, every single piece of it. So what are you going to latch on to? What are you going to make up? And what are you willing to dive into next? Because it's not about the old story anymore. It's about creating a new one. And you can create it however you want it. And I'm living proof of that. So you're suggesting that the pain, the loss, the suffering that we deal with in, in life is, uh, you know, self-generated. I do believe it's self-generated. I believe we created it so that we would get out of the lies that we bought ourselves into. My backdrop for the Rebel Road show, it, it shows a desert, a cracked desert that's all grays, and it turns into this vibrant, colorful landscape where this woman is in her full radiance. That is the story. That is the dark night of the soul. That is the hero's journey. That is the walk that each and every one of us came here to take. And it wasn't to take it from a place of 
having pain and having suffering. It was from the place of an adventure. I was listening to my little three-year-old a few months ago, and he was in his room, and he had all of his little toys out, and he was pretending that they were animated and they were speaking to each other. And one of the toys was saying to the other one, oh, I've gone into the jungle, and I'm wounded, and I've been broken, and I'm going to be dying, and I'm suffering. And the other one said, I'll save you, I'll save you. Well, isn't that the story that we've all created? that we had to be wounded and suffering first so that we could then be saved? Of course we're all here playing as children of the universe. We've just forgotten that we were playing because that's the one thing children do. They take their play very seriously. In fact, that's the only thing they take seriously. And so as divine children of the universe, we took our play so seriously that we forgot we were playing and we dived right into the story and then forgotten we were in the story. So this is now saying... Be conscious that you're in a beautiful story that you created, and now be willing to weave that story however you like, and know that there are dots, conversations with the universe that lead to your journey to enlightenment if you're willing to step out of your servitude, your bondage, your replication, and become a creative rebel in your own life. And being a creative rebel means there's nothing to fix out there. There's nothing to fix in here. It really is all okay. You're just here to follow your heart, to live your dreams, to live your passions, and open up that fountain of youth that is there. And in doing so, you will be the example that others need to see so that they can do the same. Okay, now, you know, Simran, uh, I, I want to contrast the child with, with an issue. You know, we... I'm going to ask you what death is about and how, how the child treats that because, you know, psychologists, philosophers, metaphysicians for that matter, and a number of spiritual teachers are all on record suggesting, as Tolstoy did in his uh, short story, Ivan Illich, that uh, we don't think of life, we don't, you know, uh, as, as being terminal, we don't prepare for death, we don't plan death, and so when dying comes upon us, uh, we meet it with despair, we meet it with fear, we meet it with, with great, you know, frustration, and, uh, and of course, as a child, the last thing in the world we contemplate is, is death. So, with your childlike view, do we do we think of death as a reality that is something we should be well prepared for? Or, you know, I mean, do we follow the philosophers and the psychologists and, and the thoughts of Tolstoy? Or do we just, uh, you know, do we just ignore that and, and, and live our lives as children in the sandbox, uh, ignorant of what might come later? I would say we live our child lives as children in the sandbox, not ignorant, but innocent. What you're talking about, that death, you said it yourself, Eldon, the last thing children think about is death. They don't even think about it. We adults do. Who creates war? Adults create war. Children don't. Children go onto a playground and they play with everybody that's there, whether they know them or not. Now, now now in fairness, they can be really mean to one another. I mean, they don't create nuclear war. They don't carry bazookas and grenade launchers, but they can really be horrible to one another. Go back to little children. Go back to little ones. I'm not talking about the ones that have already had some of their... Four-year-olds. I've seen four-year-olds literally bully other children, take their their things. So, I mean, how little do we want to go? To the diaper? But but even a four-year-old, if they are bullying, they have already had that experience. They've been taught that that's what it is. I'm asking you to go back to that place 
of, of really that untouched child, and many of us don't even know that place. I didn't even know what it was like to be a child because I never played. I've been working since I was four years old. And so for me to have written this book, to have this channel through me about the child, was an awakening for me because it allowed me to tap into a place that I'd never even known. Death is something that everyone is afraid of. That is the greatest fear of each and every human being, and that is why we create a lot of the things we create in our lives. What if we consciously approached life with death? What if we allowed ourselves to let things die away that were the struggle, that were hard? The reason children don't have that concept of death is because when they play with something and they're finished with it and move on to something else, they don't have the mourning period. They know how to process their emotions fully and live in those emotions in their full ecstasy. If my child is having a tantrum on the floor, there will be tears streaming, face sweating, screaming, legs flailing, arms beating against the carpet. He's in the full ecstasy of his anger and his rage and his tears. It's beautiful. It is passion. And then two seconds later, he'll notice a toy under the couch that he forgot three months ago, and he'll be giggling and laughing and rolling around the floor playing. And then he's in his full ecstasy of that emotion. We adults, we have suppressed our emotions so deeply that we don't feel the fullness of our anger or rage, nor do we feel the heights of our bliss, because we don't allow that. What if we just let ourselves be children? What if we let ourselves feel? I'm not saying we lash out with those things, but we let ourselves feel them. Then we would continually wash ourselves clean. Then we wouldn't build up identities and barriers that we have to then die from. I don't know if I can, you know, as much as highly as I think of you, I think, I don't know that I can buy let out that anger like you did as a child. Um, I think sublimation, uh, cortical inhibition, uh, that's what maturity is about. We know that young children just simply don't have cortical inhibitory abilities because the brain is simply not sufficiently developed. I didn't uh, say let it out. I said feel it. There's a difference. Okay. I didn't okay. say that's childish to express it. Childlike means to feel it to let ourselves fully feel the emotions. We are here as experience experiencing itself. What if none of it's bad, but it is just experience? And once we let ourselves fully experience the full gamut of it, what if that was all that was required, and then we don't have to recreate the circumstances to re-experience that degree of emotion again? Okay, I'll take your what if. Listen, Simran, I want everybody out there to know uh, what's what you've got coming up? Uh, how's a good way for them to reach you? Uh, do you handle or process email? If they have questions, or they want to know more about you, uh, how do they go about learning more? My main website is simran-sing.com. That's S-I-M-R-A-N-S-I-N-G-H.com. And I have all kinds of social media. I'm on YouTube with The Daily Diary. I post lots of videos. Uh, we have the final month of the Rebel Road Tour coming up in June, and I have shows in Atlanta, Georgia, in Yelm, Washington, and some events in Seattle and a couple of other places on the West Coast. And you can go to my main website, again, simran-sing.com, and find out about my books, my tour, and everything else that I'm doing. 
Okay, now my lovely bride has got this question stuck here in front as the last question. You're going to be in Yelm and you're going to be in Seattle. You know, you're not, in either instance, you're not four hours from us. Are you coming down to see us? I already emailed her back. I would love to see both of you. It would be an honor and a pleasure. Well, it will be our pleasure. We look forward to your visit, that's for sure. Uh, I, it, two great books. And again, I'm going to, you know, I recommend them both Conversations with the Universe, How the World Speaks to Us, and Your Journey to Enlightenment 12 Guiding Principles of Love, Courage, and Commitment in the New Dawn by Simran Singh. You have last words for us, Simran, something you'd like to leave with our audience? There is one truth that is always present, and that is that we're in love all of the time. We're with love all of the time. We are of love all of the time. We are simply to be as love all of the time. So I invite you to take on the mantra that I use and allow yourself to repeat it constantly because you will discover yourself approaching life in a whole new way. And that mantra is in love, of love, with love, and as love. In love, of love, with love, and as love. I like that. That's very beautiful, is it not? Yes, and Simran, your YouTube channel, uh, My Beautiful Bride, wants everybody to make sure that they get to your YouTube channel. I've been watching your videos there, but what is it, how do they identify your channel again? Most of my so- social media is the uh, forward slash Simran Singh 1111. Forward slash Simran Singh 1111. Simran, yes. thank you very much. I've enjoyed this uh, time together, and I hope you don't think I was too hard on you. Uh I do indeed enjoy your work, and, and I do uh, love your philosophy. Uh, sometimes the questions I ask are really, as you would say, they are, from my perspective, how do I incorporate this in my life if my doubts are to see these things this way? We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest again and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on the show, do please let us know, okay? Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. <laughs>